Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. I think we all recognize that we are in the middle of a crisis, right? It's, it's a global crisis, and I think <clears throat> that's why I even have my water here. Because when you speak, sometimes you get a bit uh, dry. Don't worry if I have to cough. <laughs> Don't get distracted, all right? But these are times, these are extraordinary times that we are living in. All our lives have been disrupted to one degree or another, to one degree or another. So let me begin with a quote from Pastor Benny Ho's posting, which he put up on Facebook. He says, if we respond as Christians, if we respond to this crisis correctly, it can turn out to be a defining moment in our discipleship. I think it's not a coincidence that senior pastor began this year, started us off with a call to return to authentic or radical discipleship. And if we are going to respond to this crisis correctly as Christians, then the first thing we must do is to examine ourselves. And to quote Pastor Benny Ho's post again, what do we examine? We examine the condition of our heart and the direction of our life. In this crisis, when so many are asking how to stay alive, the real question for us Christians, what we should be asking is, what are we living for? It's time for us to check, he says, if we are truly living for what truly matters. And so this morning, we examine the condition of our heart. And we want to examine the direction of our life. And we ask ourselves this question, what are we living for? Are we living for what truly matters? In a sense, this is really a wake-up call for us as a church. Not only this church, but generally for us Christians. We want to wake up to the fact that we have been complacent in our faith, in living out our faith, and to some degree, we have been marching more to the drumbeat of this world than that of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that our values and our priorities are more temporal than eternal. <clears throat> we are dealing with the church at Sardis this morning. They had a wake-up call. And it came in the form of a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let me give you some background to the church or to the city of Sardis first. The city of Sardis was a very wealthy city. It was situated in the crossroads of important trade routes and it was very rich in natural resources. It had gold in its river and the first gold and silver coins in the world was minted at Sardis. Oops. This slide here shows the fortified city of Sardis, the ruins of the city of Sardis. It was also located up on a cliff, as you can see, with 90 degree walls on all sides except a small path up the city. So it was very easy to defend this city. Any, every time the enemy came, those in the valley would just go up into the fortified city 
and they are safe. In fact, the city of Sardis was considered impervious to enemy attacks. But unfortunately for this city, its wealth and its strategic location led to a false sense of security and complacency. It literally fell asleep in the midst of imminent danger. This city was conquered two times. Both times, same method. The sentry that was on guard duty fell asleep, thinking that the city was impervious to attacks. So the enemy sent a couple of skilled wall climbers, climbed up the steep slope, opened the doors while everyone was asleep, and let the enemy troops in. You would have thought that they would have learned the lesson the first time it happened, right? But that's what wealth can do to us. We get comfortable, we forget our mission, at least for the sentry guard to be on guard, we get complacent and we fall asleep. Unfortunately, that was what happened to the church in this city as well. They became wealthy, they became worldly, and they forgot their mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus comes to them with a wake-up call and a threat to come like a thief if they did not wake up. So let's read this letter to Sardis and then let's draw some important practical lessons for us so that we will not land up like Sardis, a dead church in a wealthy city. I think it's supposed to go forward, right? Oh, this way. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. If you have a Bible, I think the words are a bit small. Maybe you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who, have, who, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's get into the letter a little bit more detail. Verse 1a. To the angel in the church in Sardis write. This is how all the letters begin. They are directed to the angels of the respective churches. We cannot be sure whether these angels are really meant to be human pastors and elders or whether they are really divine messengers sent by God. 
But regardless, I think the fact that this letter was addressed to the angels immediately lifts the eyes of that earthly church to heavenly, eternal and spiritual realities. Because the church was just too focused on things of the earth. And the key spiritual reality that confronts the church is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 1b, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. These letters are messages from Jesus Christ himself. These are not words from John the Apostle, not from earthly leaders, not from angels. These are words from the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So the implication for the church, of course, is that it must take heed of these words. They must obey because these are the words from the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. And what were the words of Jesus to this church? The words were, verse 1c, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. This is no approval, only accusation. This is one of the ugly churches that we have in Revelation of the seven churches. And the accusation is this, that on the surface, they had an appearance of being alive. Perhaps there was a lot of activity, they were doing a lot of things, but in reality, they were dead. And so the admonition for this church is to wake up. It is a wake-up call. They have been complacent, they fell asleep with regard to their mission to be salt and light, and they have become, instead of being salt and light, being a witness, they have become like the city they were in. They have not fulfilled their responsibility. Instead, they have grown soft, they have grown flabby, and they have not persevered in their mission. They have gotten comfortable with their wealth, they have gotten self-indulgent, and they have stopped serving God. And so the appeal is this. Strengthen what remains, what is about to die, because their works are incomplete. In other words, the, the appeal is to continue to serve, continue to work, continue what they had stopped doing. You see, the word incomplete or unfinished really means it was unfulfilled. In other words, there was a mission for them to fulfill. They were supposed to produce fruit, but they stopped. So they were not fruitful. They were not fulfilling what Jesus, the Lord of the church, meant for them uh, to accomplish. So what were they supposed to do? Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it. Repent. And this is the first step towards repentance. We remember. We remind ourselves. We examine how we live our lives. Remember what they had been taught, how they were supposed to live. Remember that they were meant to live as disciple-makers, not contented consumers in a wealthy city. They must now recognize how far they have fallen short. And then to turn, change their ways, that's what repentance is. And then to resume their mission and their work. And then comes this very serious threat in verse 3b. And the serious threat is this. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. 
You see, the tragedy for complacency and for sadists was that usually we are not even aware of our situation. They were, the city, uh, the, the church in Sardis was not aware that they were complacent. They thought they were doing fine, but in fact, they were asleep. They could not see the danger that they were in. And I'm sure Jesus' threat to come against them like a thief was not lost on, on them because they knew the history of the city. Two times they were plundered and destroyed because the enemy came as thieves in the night. They stole into the city while everyone was asleep, including the guard on duty, and the city was destroyed because of them. It was a powerful wake-up call. But also, can you imagine Jesus telling them that, they, that he is coming to them as an enemy? Oh, this is so serious. We all think of Jesus as our friend. Jesus is coming as an enemy, coming against them to destroy them. Wow, that's, that must have been a very powerful jolt to their sleep, to wake them up. But the assurance is this. They have a few who have not soiled their garments. In other words, there is hope. Soiled the garments is a picture of adopting the values and the lifestyle of the city. For the majority in the church, there was no longer any difference between how they lived and how the rest of the city lived. But there were a few who remained faithful and they had not adopted the, the values and the lifestyles of the city. And the assurance to them is that they will continue to enjoy walking with Jesus Christ. This is a metaphor for intimate relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus, as well as partnership with Him in His continuing mission in the world. For those who have not sought their garments, this is the promise to them. And then verse 5, to those who conquer are given three assurances for the future. Conquer here refers not so much to an external threat. They were not facing an external threat. It was largely an internal threat. And that threat was their tendency towards complacency, towards compromise, towards self-indulgence. And that was what they needed to conquer. So then they can return to the roots of their faith to live as authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. What were these three promises? The three promises for the future are these. Firstly, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Secondly, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And thirdly, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. White garments. To be clothed in white garments is the picture of the scene in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, where a great multitude, no one could come from every nation, every tribe, people and language, standing before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes, white, white garments, holding palm branches in their hands. That's the picture. So to be clothed in white garments is a picture of being a part of that heavenly congregation at the end of time when we all stand 
before the Lord Jesus Christ. The second, sorry, the second promise is that I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The book of life is that book that records the names of those who inherit eternal life, those who are free, who are saved from the second death. So the obvious question for us is that does it mean that our names can be blotted out after it's been written in the book of life? Well, it depends on whether you're a Calvinist or you're an Armenian, right? If you're a Calvinist, you'll say, of course not. And of course, as, as good brethren, you will say, of course not, right? If you're an Armenian, you'll say, of course, you can. But the reality is, both of these truths have strong scriptural base. So we need, as Christians, then to hold these two truths in tension, right? How do we hold these two truths in tension practically in our Christian lives? By having an assurance without presumption and having a holiness without anxiety. What does that mean? What does assurance without presumption mean? It means that we can be assured of our salvation when we have exercised faith, when we have put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Saviour and as our Lord for this life and for eternity. But to be presumptuous is to say, I've said a sinner's prayer, I've been baptised, I've even had my name in the register of the church, so now I can do anything I want on earth and then enjoy heaven when I die. Salvation is not a series of checkboxes we tick to get to heaven. Salvation is a matter of living faith. Faith that reconnects us with the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fountainhead of life. When we are reconnected with life, Jesus Christ, life flows into us. And that relationship that must transform our life from one degree of glory to another. On the other hand, there is holiness without anxiety. And what that means is that we do not need to fret and worry about whether we are saved every time we sin or we feel a bit distant from God. We are not anxious about our salvation because we know we are held in the palms of God's right hand. Right hand is the hand of authority and the hand of strength. And so, the implication therefore is that no one will be able to snatch us out from God's hand. John chapter 10 verse 29. So, we are safe. We are secure. But between presumptuousness and anxiousness, the church at Sardis obviously had more problems with being presumptuous. And I think generally that is probably true of us as well. The third assurance for the future is that I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. What a blessed assurance. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus Christ confessing our names before God the Father 
and before his angels. Hui Xing Chuan, I'll just use my name because I don't want to embarrass any of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Wow! <laughs> I mean, isn't that something to live for? Right? This is powerful motivation for us to pay attention to how we choose to live our lives on earth. What's the opposite? The opposite is, depart from me. I never knew you. Wow. Let's choose wisely and let's live our lives wisely. Verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the same appeal to all the churches. In other words, don't just listen. Don't just get the words into your ear. Get the words into your heart. Get the words into your hands so that you can begin to work and begin to listen, to obey. So, did the church at Sardis listen? Actually, they did. I think they did. Because we know in history that there is a bishop by the name of Melito, Bishop Melito, in the second century, which means, you know, Revelation was written in the end of the first century, this second century, so maybe decades after this letter. He was a noted leader amongst the early church leaders during that time in the second century. He was one of the most influential leaders of the church and he was considered by many to be even a prophet. And he, his favourite, I think, uh, apostle was the Apostle John. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he even wrote a uh, uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. So, I think they listened and they heeded. So the question for us is, how will we respond? Will we listen? How can we respond to this letter? Let me suggest three things. First of all, I think we need to recognize complacency and self-indulgence in our own lives. We are vulnerable to be complacent and self-indulgent. Like Sardis, we are a wealthy church in a wealthy city. And though we may not have gold in our rivers, Singapore has a GDP amongst the highest in the world. And if we are not careful, wealth has a way of turning us into self-confident, complacent, worldly Christians and self-indulgent consumers rather than witnesses, disciples and disciple-makers. And the nature of complacency is such that we are often unaware of it ourselves. Very easy to see in other people, but we don't see in ourselves. And the fact that you know, we now daily and constantly need to be reminded to wash our hands, take our temperatures twice daily, wear our masks if we don't feel well, tell us that we are prone to be complacent. Like this man reading papers on the railway track with his back facing the incoming train. Sardis was asleep in the midst of imminent danger. 
And the truth is, to varying degrees, we are all guilty of complacency. The Bible has a very graphic description of complacency in the book of Amos, written during a time when Israel was enjoying peace and prosperity just a few decades before it was destroyed by Assyria. I read Amos chapter 6 verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Verse 4. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on couches. You dine on choice lambs, fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful. That's a lot. And you use finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You see, the Bible gives us a picture of complacency as living self-indulgent, carefree lives. Carefree in the sense that we don't care about anything apart from how to have a good time, how to pleasure my senses through beautiful things, art, nice food, wine, song, I buy a bed decorated with ivory simply because it gives me pleasure. I can afford it. I have worked hard. I'm entitled to spend my money the way I wish. That kind of attitude. The poor, the moral decay of the nation, that was the problem during Amos' time. Not my problem. That's the kind of attitude that was going on at that time at least not high on my priority list. They have other people, agencies, religious leaders to take care of those kinds of things. You see, I'm living complacently when I live life with the primary aim of pleasing myself without recognizing my responsibilities to others, without recognizing what my mission is in life and what my purpose is in life. You can replace beds decorated with ivory, lounging on couches, with upgrading phones every year, extravagant dinners and vacations, binging on TV serials uh, and Netflix. I use this example because I've been guilty of this. So, you know, uh, it's not to point out certain things. I've been guilty of this. Thank God I'm delivered from some of this. I'm still struggling. I like new technology, new phones, faster, better cameras, computers. I can't afford to upgrade my phone every year to buy faster and camera lenses, faster camera lenses, provided my wife allows me to. <laughs> so I can take better photos. Because taking photos is my hobby. It gives me pleasure. But I need to ask myself if I'm not complacent, do I really need to upgrade my phone every year? Do I really need to get that fast and expensive lens when I use it only a couple times a year? Is there something that I value more than a fast lens and a new phone? That's 
what I need to ask myself. Same for how I spend my time. Actually, time is the most valuable resource we all have. When our time is up, our time is up. So how do I invest this valuable resource? Of course, I need time to rest, maybe watch a bit of TV. Actually, I don't now. Um, but if I spend all my time binging on TV serials or doing certain, uh, indulging in my hobbies, then I am putting the value of entertainment higher on my list of priorities than other things like developing relationship with my friends so that I have an opportunity to share with them the good news that has been entrusted to me or spend time praying for the church, serving others, visiting the sick, and so on. You see, how we spend our time and our money reflects what we value in life, what our priorities are in life. To be complacent then, is to forget that there are more important priorities in this life beyond pleasuring ourselves and our senses. It is to forget that we have responsibilities and a mission in this life. It is to forget that this life is not all there is to live for. So let's recognize our tendency towards complacency and its twin which is self-indulgence in our own lives. Because these tendencies are used by the devil to kill our spiritual lives and to render us ineffective as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends and brothers and sisters, there is a battle going on for our souls. That is why 1 Peter 5.8 exhorts us to be alert to be sober-minded, the enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. If we are complacent, if we live life without thinking, without thinking about values, what my mission is, then perhaps very soon we may be devoured by the evil one. Secondly, if we recognize that we have been complacent and self-indulgent, then let us remember and let us repent. What do we remember? We remember what our mission is, what we are called to be and what we are called to do. And then we repent that we have not been as faithful as we could have been. So what are we called to be and what are we called to do? We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And our mission is to make disciples. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we march to a different drumbeat from the world. What does that mean? The world applauds us when we consume. The more we consume, the more it celebrates. Because this is what makes the world go round. The bigger the car, the more expensive the car, the newer and the fancier the technology, more and more exciting entertainment. This is what the world celebrates. What about us as Christians? What do we celebrate as disciples of Jesus Christ? 
What are some of the metaphors for the Christian life in the Bible? Salt, light, pilgrim, athlete, soldier, builder, fruit-bearing, sheep, seed, kernel of wheat, part of a body, and you can name more, I'm sure. What do they speak of? They speak of witness, perseverance, diligence, hard work, training, fight or war, discipline, obedience, fellowship, dying to self, serving others, making disciples. You see, we, we will march to a different beat when we value these things and when we celebrate that we have become more faithful pilgrims, wiser and more diligent builders of God's kingdom, better athletes, more vigilant soldiers for Him, more fruitful trees, more obedient sheep, more willing to die to ourselves so that we can serve others better, more effective disciple makers. That's what we should be celebrating. We march to a different beat when we react to crisis differently from the world. This slide here shows what our brothers and sisters in Wuhan are doing. You can't really read the words well. But what they're doing is they're going out into the streets. This was about it was a block from the Heart Cry Missionary Society that was posted up on 7th February. They were going out into the streets to hand out masks. Masks in Wuhan is more precious than gold. You may have money, but you cannot buy masks. And what these Christians are doing is that they are going to the streets to give out masks when everybody else was hoarding whatever masks they could get. Christians there became counterculturally. They went out and they continued to share the gospel and they gave out masks at the same time. You know, this act of kindness softened the hearts of the policemen who were before this arresting these same Christians for sharing the gospel. They are now willing to hear the gospel and of course receive the mass from them as well. How about us? Can we now be alert to opportunities to have meaningful conversations with our non-Christian friends on matters of faith, hope and peace in times like this. Are we doing what, in that, what the blog says, doing what the true Christian should do in this situation? Preaching the gospel and being witness of true peace, true hope that come from Jesus Christ. You see, my brothers and sisters, this is the time to live out our faith with courage, with compassion, with hope, and not cowering in fear. So let's, the third thing is, let's redouble our energies to complete the mission that God has entrusted, that Jesus has entrusted to us. This mission to make disciples and to build His kingdom. Live for what truly matters. Don't stop serving like the church in Sardis. 
their works were incomplete, they were unfruitful. In the language of John Bunyan in his book Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sure many of you uh, would have read it, don't get stuck on enchanted ground. Enchanted ground is a place that Christian's wife, Christiana, passes through as she makes her pilgrimage to celestial city, to heaven. It's a place that tempts the weary to rest and to sleep. But those who rest and who sleep here cannot be aroused anymore. They sleep the sleep of death, as it were. Enchanted ground is placed strategically at the end of our journey when we are most likely to be weary. You see, when we have been Christians, and there are many here, for many, many years, and we have served many, many years, we feel entitled to rest. Let the younger ones take over, part of leadership succession. We have done our share. It's time for us to retire. Right? <laughs> <coughs> Well, I have thought about that many, many times. Uh, I've been elder, as you know, many, many years too. Anyway, I'm not stepping down anymore <laughs> after this. <laughs> Provided you don't want me to. Anyway, <laughs> I like this prayer of this psalmist. I like this attitude. Psalm 71, verses 70 to 80. Oh God. You have taught me from my earliest childhood. And I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. Now that I am old and great, for me, Paul, right? <laughs> do not abandon me, O oh God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. Wow. Praise God, right? For this kind of attitude. That's what I want. I want to pray for this kind of attitude. The older we are, actually, for those of you who share my age, actually we have more to tell. More stories to tell of God's power and God's miracles simply because we have been alive for longer. Right? And we need to tell these stories to the next generation to our young adults, to our youth, to our children, to our grandchildren. Our work doesn't stop. Nothing, no such thing as retiring into the sunset. So for those of us who have been serving faithfully, the message is continue that good work. Don't just pass on your role and then stop. Take on something else. There is so much we can do to proclaim the power of God to a new generation. Yes, of course, how we serve God will change as we go through different seasons of our lives. But as long as God gives us breath, there is a job that has our name on it. I may not continue to be an elder. It doesn't matter. There is another job that God has in store for me even if it is not as another. I give you an example from my wife and I have a permission to share this. Grace, my wife, is my CG leader. 
<clears throat> she became a CG leader not because she felt gifted to do so. She did it because there was no one else to take on the job at that time. Our CG had disbanded for some time because no one was willing to take on the job. But she felt that all of us needed one another. So she took on the job hesitantly. I tell you, after she took on the job, I witnessed gifts in her that I had not seen before. I say this carefully. <laughs> Maybe she said, never open your eyes. Maybe. Thoughtful leadership. Ability to bond us together as a team, insightful sharing, wise counsel, and so on. My point is this. Don't need to agonize over, do I have this gift before I serve? No. No need to discover your gifts first and then serve. Serve and then you will know what gifts God has given you. Discover your gifts as you serve. If God has not given you that gift, you will know. Because it's not going to be very effective. Then do something else. Serve and then discover your gifts in the process. Another thing, don't see serving and working as a chore, as a burden, or even an obligation. Oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I have to serve. No. It is a privilege to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our hands will be strengthened and our hearts encouraged to serve, to stay faithful, to invest our time and our money wisely when we wake up to the reality of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before whom all creation, all humanity, all of us will bow one day and declare that He is worthy. That's why the letters to the seven churches are bracketed by John's vision of the magnificence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. A glory and a magnificence that no tongue or pen can adequately describe. But John recorded the best he can for us in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 5. The first time when John saw the vision of Jesus Christ, he fell at Jesus' feet as though dead because he was awestruck, totally overwhelmed by the immensity of Jesus' magnificence and glory. The second time he saw the vision, he saw the whole host of heaven, all creation on earth, in the sea, falling down before Jesus, worshipping and proclaiming that he is worthy of everything. Worthy to open the scroll. In other words, sovereign over the unfolding of the history of earthly affairs. Worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. We too will experience that magnificence, that glory when we see Jesus one day. But for now, what can we do? We can read the Bible every day to discover the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above all earthly things so that we will consider it a privilege to serve Him 
to work with Him, to spend our money, our time, our resources, our talents on His priorities. Jesus is worth far more than any earthly treasure or pleasure. Amen. You see, when we catch the vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, then sensual pleasures, earthly attractions, treasures, they will all seem like rubbish. That's what Paul experienced. The other thing that we need to wake up to is we need to wake up to that there are eternal consequences to how we choose to live our lives on earth. Our names are either in the book of life or it is not. Jesus will either confess our names before the Father and before his angels or he will tell us that he never knew us. So we must live carefully. We must be alert to the dangers of complacency in our lives because that will kill us. Let me end with this. I came across this illustration in a Singapore Bible College newsletter written by Dr. Peter Ho. It is about how to trap a monkey, the South Indian way. Well, what do you do? You take a coconut, you bore a hole just big enough for the hand of the monkey to slip into. You drain the juice, hollow it out, and then you chain the coconut down. Then you place some rice inside the coconut as bait. When the monkey slips its hand into the coconut to grab the rice, its clenched fist now, bigger than the hole, will be stuck in the coconut. And since the coconut is chained down, you trap the monkey. Robert Persig wrote about this story in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He says, the monkey reaches in and is suddenly trapped by nothing more than his own value rigidity. He can't revalue the rice. He cannot see that freedom without the rice is more valuable than capture within. For us Christians, the rice in the coconut is the treasures of this world. How? Do we value the treasures in this world? The question is, is Jesus Christ worthy of the rice in the coconut? You see, of course he is, even if the rice in the coconut are treasures. Salvation is free by the grace of God. But discipleship will cost us everything. All the treasures in this world. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what do we do? We let go of the rice in the coconut so that Jesus can fill us with eternal treasures far more glorious than all the temporal treasures that we will ever have, all the temporal treasures that we seek for, more glorious than that. 
live for what truly matters. So are we going to be like the church at Sardis? They responded. They repented. And they redoubled their energy to serve God. How can we respond? I think first of all, we can repent of our own self-indulgent ways, our complacency in building God's kingdom, our reluctance and impotence as His witnesses to the life-giving gospel that God has entrusted to us. And then we recalibrate our values. We release that grass on that rice in the coconut, these treasures of the world, and we recast our eyes on the glory and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ because He is worth living for. And we look forward to seeing our names written in the book of life and Jesus confessing our names before God the Father and before His angels. And we redouble our energies whatever season of life we may be in, to play our part in building God's kingdom for God's glory. Do we want to respond to that? Amen? Amen. Let's rise and let's respond to God. And let's pray to God to open our eyes and open our eyes to what truly matters in this world and open our eyes again to His glory. Heavenly Father, may stand before Your presence. You know our hearts, Lord. And I pray this morning You will examine our hearts, that we will be honest with You, each one of us, we have different weaknesses. The world has different ways, Lord, to hold us, to attract us. And God, we have not valued eternal things enough. We have spent too much pleasuring our flesh. And so God, as a church this morning, we stand in your presence and we repent. We remember our mission, what you have called us to do and to be your disciples, to make disciples. And we pray, God, that you will strengthen our hands, that you may help us complete the task and the mission that you have given to us. Cast our eyes back to you, O God. Lord Jesus, you are present among us. You walk among the churches and you are walking in our midst. Give us these eyes to see you for who you really are, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So glorious, so majestic, 
so magnificent. And God, what is our life? What can we truly offer to you? You are worthy of everything. You are worth living for. And so, Father, we want to pray that you will strengthen our hands, God. Tell us, lead us, and direct our eyes to what and where we can serve you. And help us to do our part in making disciples and in building your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be like Paul, to count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you, Lord Jesus. And that we may, for your sake, suffer the loss of all things. But really, it is not a loss because all things are rubbish in comparison to your magnificent glory. We suffer the loss so that we may gain you and to be found in you. Hear our prayers. And now, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word for his glory for his name's sake in jesus name we pray amen thank you the service is over for those of you who want to stay back and pray please come forward and continue to to pray